Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we have a good friend of the family, somebody I literally um, feel like I have known since before I was born. His family is closely connected to mine. Um, he is a hero of mine. His father truly is a hero of us all, but none other than James Foreman Jr. How you feeling today? I'm good, man. Good to be with you. Yeah, man. Uh, we start each one of our shows in a very unique way in that okay. we like our we like our guests to walk us through the arc of their careers. And you've had a storied career in the law and in legal academia. Walk us through each of your career stops from your clerkships after law school to the work you do now at Yale. Absolutely. So I was clerking after graduation. I was working at the Supreme Court for Justice O'Connor, and I was trying to figure out what kind of lawyer I wanted to be. This is the early 90s. And if you can believe it, at that time, we didn't even have the term mass incarceration. It hadn't been created yet. But what you already knew at that stage was that, you know, we had one in three young black men under criminal justice supervision. The United States had passed Russia and South Africa, become the world's largest jailer. And I felt at that moment, you know, thinking about our parents' struggle and thinking about how I was going to play a role. To me, it felt like the criminal justice system or the criminal legal system, it was the place. It was the place. It was the civil rights challenge, I felt like, of our generation. So I decided to become a public defender because it felt to me like... Not make any money either, but go ahead. No, not make any money, but it was like if you wanted to fight mass incarceration, if you wanted to fight too many people being locked up, too many Black people in particular, it seemed like going in to court every day representing people trying to get them out, trying to get them free was, was a way to do it. So, so that's what I did. And during that time, uh, I was representing young people, uh, juveniles, and I was really frustrated with the lack of educational opportunities that my clients were getting. And so I took a year off from the public defender's office to start an alternative school, which we named after Maya Angelou. So the Maya Angelou School were now in our 25th year and we were trying to represent young people who were caught in, in the system, people who were locked up, people who had been arrested, people who were getting shunted off to the worst schools in the city, but who really needed the best schools. And so I, I created that, you know, helped to create that program with, with some folks. And then a couple of years later, I decided to become a professor. And that's what I've been doing, you know, ever since. You know, we can't talk on the first day of Black History Month without talking about your uh, mother and father's activism and how that shaped your career and your orientation toward the world. You know, many times people hear the story about my, my dad. They don't necessarily hear the story about my mom. And, mm -hmm. you know, some who listen to the show know that she was a part of the desegregating class of Hamilton High School in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. But how did your parents' activism shape the work that you do now? I mean, I think it shaped it in that really directly. I mean, I'm sure this was the case for you as well, but my whole life, I grew up around activism. I grew up around people who were talking about the work they had done in the 60s and were continuing to do. I mean, I wasn't alive in the 19... I was born in the late 1960s, but I wasn't aware of the movement as it was happening, but I became aware of it very shortly after. Um, and so... You know, the people who came through our house, you know, Julian Bond, John Lewis, uh, you know, uh, your father, you know, these are these are giants. And I remember my mom and my dad 
uh, talking about what it was like to 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 face down, you know, Bull Connor and the dogs. And and so in a way, I guess you could say, and I, I you probably feel the same way. Like I was almost born into it in a way that yeah. I, I don't know how to put it, but I was like trying to tell people, like, don't give me credit. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't deserve any credit. It was like, what else are you going to do? Like, you if no you choice. grew up in that this household. Was, yeah. Right. I mean, you're, you're, you have no choice. I mean, you're, we're both SNCC kids. So, right. I mean, what was it like to grow up in the legacy of SNCC? Not just the parents who, who had a job who did this, but in that legacy of SNCC in particular, because- you know, if my daddy talks about the the Quaker roots of SNCC one more time, then I, I'm gonna fall out. But what does that what does that feel like? What does that de- how does that define you to be a part of that SNCC legacy? I mean, if you want to get real specific to SNCC, um, and more even specific than the movement, right? The, some of the messages that I heard at home were first of all that we were the front lines. We were the young people. We were willing to go places where no one else was willing to go. The older folks, uh, even some of the ministers, some of the more established people who of course were incredibly courageous themselves, but there was a point, a line that they would draw. But SNCC was always prepared to go that one step further in a way that young people always are willing to go one step further. So that was one message that we grew up a lot with. And then the other was the importance of having social change built in community that, you know, you couldn't come from down up high and arrive in a community and tell it what to do. You know, SNCC workers were in and of the community. They, they would embed themselves in local communities, find out from people, well, what is it, what are your challenges? And then try to help arm them with the skills and the tactics that they needed to create and sustain the change themselves. So I think that was another, you know, message uh, that I got. And for me, even to this day, it's it's why so much of my work is local. I mean, that's that's very powerful. And I, I all I can say to that is is ditto. And the community aspect, particularly in my my political forays, has been so important because they went to neighborhoods and empowered those people to do the work. They right. worked with those local people and. The same thing that we don't do in politics enough today is something that that's a lesson learned. So I want I want to change topic slightly because you're a former public defender and law professor who has written and thought a lot about what's wrong with American policing. Can you diagnose beyond the obvious what we saw in Memphis and what we continue to see across the country around police violence? And uh, it's a difficult question because we've given them the body cameras, we've given them the training, we've given them more officers in certain areas. Um, what's the fix? You know, that's obviously a big question and and it's a hard question, but to me, I like to go step by step, both for the diagnosis and the fix, because to me, they just go together. So you have to start with who you are bringing in to be officers, right? From right now, when we hire police officers, we by and large tell them, we're, we're looking for warriors. We're looking for fighters. Uh, we're looking for people who want to be in control of the situation at all times. Now we bring them in and then we train and we reinforce. You say that they've gotten the training. That's true. But but what kind of training have they gotten? You know, in a lot of a lot of communities, they get trained 
to do these dragnet stops of cars, right? Where the message is, listen, stop a thousand cars, pull over a thousand motorists, question a thousand people, and not, of course, any motorists, but disproportionately black motorists. And eventually you're going to find something. Eventually you're going to recover a gun. And then when they do recover the gun, they hold that up in the press conference and they say, look, we recovered 10 guns, but nobody has a conversation about the thousand people that they had to stop to get those 10 guns. So it's who you recruit. It's how you train them. It's what the what mission do you give them? It's do you set up these specialized units? Like, Bakari, I'm not going to lie. As soon as I heard about Memphis, the first thing I thought is I know they have they must have one of these specialized units. And then sure enough. Well, that was cheating, too, because you knew the chief of police ran them Red Dogs in Atlanta. And so the Red Dogs were the most subversive, cruel. You know, when the Red Dogs come, you better hit the floor. I mean, it was a it's a goody mob song. I mean, it's it, it's a fact of life. And she she was in a major implementation or implementor thereof. Exactly. You take this group of people and you know how they recruit. You know how they recruit for them, right? Well, they how, how do they? Because I heard they had a lot of correctional officers who were part of this unit, too. They say, we want the hardcore, the hardcore. If you're there for the community policing, if you're there to read to the kids, if you're there to play basketball, you don't come to this unit. That's not who we want. We want the fighters. We want the warriors. That's what they ask for. And then they set them off to the side. There's very little supervision. There's very little oversight. And so, you know, if you set up a system that way, I really don't think you can be surprised. Obviously, what we saw in that videotape, I haven't seen the videotape myself, couldn't bring myself to watch oh, wow. it, but I've, I've read a lot of accounts of it. And those themselves have been emotional enough for me. But what we know happened on that videotape, whether we watched it or read about it, was, of course, like outrageous and excessive and extreme. I'm not saying that that happens every day. But what I am saying is if you take yourself a few steps back from that, so not murder, but a beating or not murder, but verbal harassment, right? Not beating, but disrespect. If you take yourself a number of, of steps down from that, that is happening all the time. And so that to me is 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 it, that, that to me is the issue. And then once you've identified that as the issue, well, now you have some solutions. You get rid of these specialized forces. You yeah. stop this pretext style of policing. You recruit a different kind of officer. You recruit officers that want to take care of the community, that want to think of the people they're policing as their neighbors not as threats. And if you do all of those sorts of things, I, I think you'll see a very different set of outcomes. And why is that difficult? Why is it difficult to get there? Because when you say it, it don't sound hard. It sounds like, but I, I've, I've deduced that the most difficult thing to change in society, and I'm making this up as I go, but mm. I, I mean, I thought about this. I don't know if it's true. I mean, you you are the person who studies this, is culture. Culture is yes. the hardest thing to change. Anytime you have a football coach that says he's going to go in and change the culture, you're about to have three losing seasons because that's just the hardest thing to do. So, like, I, it feels like you have to change police culture around, I guess, nearly 2,000 different police units in the country. You know, Bakar, I mean, you're, 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 you're spot on. I, and I'm glad you mentioned the word culture because that is the heart of it. Um, now, culture comes... Where, where does culture come from? Well, it comes from history, right? Legacies that we receive. It comes from people. Uh, what, what is the kind of person that you have in the job? 
And then it comes from what sort of policies and what sort of mandates do you have in place? And the problem is we're never going to change the history, right? The history of policing is what it is. That's fixed. So we're not going to be able to change that. But you have to have leadership that has then stable enough that it can start to have some influence down into the rank and file that says we're going to do things differently. But I'm not going to lie. The reason why it's so hard in policing, it's exactly what you just said. That culture, it's not just 2,000 police forces, but each one of those police forces is made up of a bunch of individuals. And the individuals that are there either came because they wanted that former culture that you're trying to displace, or even if they didn't want it, they got used to it. And it kind of became them. So now you're coming in and you're trying to dislodge and disrupt yeah. all of that. So it is hard. It is hard. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. You're saying I something that reminds exactly. me of the officer. And he was the he was the the, the black officer in George mm. Floyd. I cannot recall his name. But mm. he had literally been on duty three days. And the reason he became a police officer is he said he wanted to change the culture. He wanted to give it a better image. He was mm. he was on duty three days and he sat by and let George Floyd be killed. And he's now mm. in prison. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise. But if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, You're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Jamel Bowie um wrote a great piece in the new york times recently about the lack of democratic control or checks on police mm. and this is unique because you have this conflict like my mom and dad particularly my mom always says she don't want fewer police she just wants better police right mm-hmm. because she wants mm-hmm. a safe community and crime is always the number one issue locally the doj sometimes isn't as muscular as it should be what's the recipe for democratic accountability for policing at every level of government mm. Oh, that's hard, but it's important. Uh, I think uh, Jamel is right about that. I think when we had some level, we do have, at least on paper, some democratic accountability, right? In theory, the police chief typically reports to a mayor or county board of supervisors, and those people are elected. So even though the police chief is not themselves directly elected, uh, those other people who appoint them are. The problem is, I think that as a society, we have come to accept a certain level of police brutality 
in the name of solving crime, right? So right now you get reappointed as a police chief if the crime goes down. That's what most, that's what people are asking. Unless you get a horrific incident like Memphis, people for the most part, part aren't noticing the smaller level things that you might be doing that are damaging to the community. All they're looking at is the crime numbers. I mean, I've sat in front of you, probably done the same thing. I've gone to Atlanta City Council Public Safety Committee hearings, and you, I see what the police representative is there to report on. It's the crime numbers. That's all. That's it. And usually they narrow it down. They do violent crime in, in South right. Carolina because we country, they do like copper theft. But those are the only two things people care about, copper theft and violent crime. Exactly. Um, so I think that what one of the things that we have to do is have people translate some of the anger that they are feeling when they watch these videos into democratic action at the lowest level so we need citizens to call to show up at those hearings yep. and to say listen i just heard a presentation and i saw you reported the copper theft numbers and the violent crime numbers but I haven't heard any conversation about civilian complaints. How many complaints were received last month and what was done with those complaints? I rarely see that question asked. And so we could either have elected officials ask it or we can have individual citizens ask it. But until we start demanding that from our, from our until we make that number as important as the crime number, I don't think their priorities are gonna change. Talk about your work at Yale at the, as the executive director at the Center for Law and Racial Justice. What is that, first of all, and why is it needed? Well, we need more racial justice, so that's why that's needed. That's why that's needed. We have a lot of racial injustice. So uh, we we just started, Bakari. So so uh, we have two projects. Um, the, but before I even tell you what the two projects are, we talked about SNCC and local work, right? So yep. this is a a local a center that is really focused on New Haven. That's our starting point. So we have two projects. The first is, it's called the Law Access Program. And I actually started it three years ago. So the Law Access Program predates our center, but now it's a part of it. And what that program does is we recruit people from the New Haven area who are first generation, people of color, immigrants, inc formerly incarcerated, who want to become lawyers, but have no pathway to law school. And it started because I teach in prison and I would talk to my incarcerated students and they would say, could I become a lawyer one day? And I would give them the technical answer, yes, you can. But then I realized, yeah, but you need to give people a pathway. You need to, people need to know how to write their personal statement. People need help yep. setting the LSAT. So we every year recruit a group of 20 people and we give them everything that you might be able to have if you came from a family of lawyers. We try to put that into our program. Uh, so we have eight people in law school now. We have in their first year, we have 14 people applying right as we speak, waiting to hear. We're getting acceptances every day. And we have 20 people who are in their first year who are studying for the LSAT, et cetera. So my goal over time is to create a cohort of community-based 
activists and advocates because a lot of the people that join our program they're already doing community work see, uh, but see I, I, you're the reason that Ron DeSantis and them boys doing what they're doing see they they trying to offset the work that James Foreman Jr. is doing talk about this from your perspective as a faculty member you're leading this institute you're doing God's work yeah you see what Ron DeSantis is doing in the college board in Florida yeah and then the University of North Carolina I don't know if you read about this but the University of North Carolina board decided they were going to create not a course, but a new school because the the uh, the the uh, the faculty had become too much left of center that they wanted to. It's like civics and something else, a new school. And they wanted to be able to offset that the board, which has no ability to even create a course, let alone a school. How do you I mean, you're at Yale, so this probably won't happen at Yale. But how do you talk to your colleagues around the country? How do you want us to fight back? against what I call the dumbing down or the focus on making our country more anti-intellectual. <laughs> it's funny, you you interrupted me in the middle of telling me about the program and you're like, yeah, you know, that you're the problem, right? You're <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I appreciate that. I, I would I I would love to be able to, you know, claim some amount of some amount of credit in that regard. But let me just say one thing about to say and I will answer your question, but um I think it was, I think this was another Jamel Bowie column. Actually, I, I could have it wrong. Somebody wrote a column in the last week or two where they said, listen, DeSantis is trying to fight these culture wars because he doesn't want anybody to notice the really unpopular stuff that he's all about, which is cutting Medicare, cutting Social Security. Yep. So right. he so he said, like, don't fight DeSantis on his on his turf. Don't fight him on the culture war turf where he's strongest. Fight him in the places where he's unpopular. But that that's, you know, that's for the Democratic Party establishment to figure out. For me and you, you know, I think that we all we can we we can do and what we must do and what is powerful to do is to talk about the work that we're about, whether it's African American history, you cannot have American history without Af African American history. It is part and parcel. So I don't understand how we can have a conversation that says we're going to not have AP African-American studies, right, in a state, unless you're just saying, I don't want this state to know a crucial part of American history and of Florida history. So all we can do is talk about the universal values. My program, I believe, is very universal, right? What we are doing is we are taking a group of people all around the city of New Haven and ultimately the state of Connecticut who have great power and great potential and bring so much potentially to our legal system. And we're making it possible to lift up their voices. So I try to speak in universalistic language as much as I can. Mm. I think SNCC was very good about doing that. Um, and I think we just we just have to make, make the case, as you just did, that He's, you know, he's dumbing down his own state. Um, and that's just, that's not an approach that's ever going to lead to success. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing a line of activewear that is unbelievable. 
the best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah. A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now. How about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. You also teach a course, Inside Out, Issues in Criminal Justice, where your students at Yale study alongside men and women incarcerated in state and federal prisons. Yeah. What has that work taught you, and how did you come up with that concept? I didn't make it up. The the inside out is it's actually a national program. Oh, really? uh, and yep. Yeah, and it, it's there's in over, I think maybe now 25 states. Um, it's run out of Temple University. It's started by a woman named uh, Lori Pompa. And they train professors all across the country to basically take the course you normally would teach in your home university and to take it inside of a prison. And the classroom is made up of half students who are incarcerated and half students from your home university. So I teach about the legal system. So Bakari, let me ask you this question. If you were wanted to learn criminal law and you wanted to learn about the legal system and you were in law school, can you imagine a better place to really dig into that and to understand how our criminal system works then in, in a seminar setting where half the people in the class have been subject to that system, have gone through that system. And not only that, but those same as somebody who represents these individuals, those same individuals, when they get incarcerated and get their hands around the law library or find the lawyer that's back there that's been disbarred and indicted, become brilliant scholars about the ins and outs of the judicial system. I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant concept. Yeah. So, so I, you know, my students love it. My incarcerated students love it. My students from Yale love it. it you know, it's like, I get great student, I get great evaluations for this class and I feel like I haven't really done anything, but, but shown up. Uh, so it, it's, it's very, it's very powerful. And it teach, and I was mentioning about the inside out program, I'm about the access to law school program, but I got the idea for the access to law school program from being in the prison. So that's the other thing about spending time in that setting is, and again, this is a snick idea, but if you put yourself in community with people who are different from you, who have different life experiences, you are going to learn things and and you come with an open mind. 
you can't help but learn things that are going to change and transform you. I mean, that's amen is all I can say to that. I talked to DeRay McKesson. He was on the show not long oh, ago yeah. about this when he came. Um, but why haven't we seen the same effort to reform prison um, and prison conditions as we have seen with policing? I, I well, there, So there is a movement. It's There is a movement, but you're right. It hasn't gotten the same energy and the same attention. And I think the really simple answer is the number of people who come in contact with each. So I don't have the statistics in front of me, but a much broader swath of the population is has direct exposure to police and an even greater swath of the population has exposure to what police are doing through some of these videos. What's happening in prison is still completely closed off. I mean, when's the last time you saw a video of, you know, prison guards or correctional officers doing some of the things that we've seen the police officers do? It's not because it's not happening. It's because that's a much more closed world. Every now and again, something gets out, but not so often. So I think there's a lot, there's not the same knowledge. And then the last thing is, and you could see this even um, in the case of, uh, of Mr. Nichols, right? It was, it was right to bring up, as people did, of course, it was right to bring up that he had just been in, in the park taking pictures, right? Part of what people are doing there is making clear, right, well, what he wasn't doing. He wasn't part of a, a drug gang, right? He wasn't doing anything that was wrong. He was doing something so incredibly peaceful. And I think with prison, there's this idea that, look, if you've gotten there, you've been up to some stuff. And so there's a little bit more of a higher tolerance for cruelty, yeah. to be honest. But I mean, um, even in the jails, though, in the jails, you ain't even, well, I know you're- uh, No, you're right. You're right. Um, but I'm, I'm, you're, you actually are right. I'm actually arguing a distinction. That most, you know how many people don't know the difference between prison and jail? Right. That's true. That's <laughs> I true. mean, so, you you know, I'm, I'm like, people just get, your son, it goes to college and gets pulled over for some possession of marijuana. He literally can die that one night in prison due to understaffing or poor conditions or- you know, a bar fight, anything can go wrong to land you there. But by the grace of God, as they say, yeah. one of my last, well, my last question for you, are there any new projects or books on the horizon and how can people keep up with what you're doing? And I have some, some people who may have some change. How can they support, although Yelp may or may not need it, but how can they support your Institute uh, and your uh, center for law and racial justice? If they like what they hear. I, I appreciate that. Um, so the I, I am working on, on a new book. Um, it's we're in conversation with uh, some publishers right now. I have a couple co-authors. So um, maybe uh, maybe when the book comes out, um, hopefully about a year, year and a half from now, I can come back on and we can have oh, a conversation about it. But it is actually going to be very focused on the conversation that we've been having right here, which is about solutions and how we overcome some of the problems in our justice system and, and over-incarceration in particular, um, it's going to be very focused on, on what to do about that. So less about the problem and more about how to create the change. Um, so that's my next big project. 
Uh, it's Yale Law and Racial Justice Center. We have some funding from the university for the first couple of years, um, but we definitely are always looking for additional support going forward. In particular, those fellows I mentioned, those people that are trying to go into law school, the big we are getting them into school, but the biggest challenge that we're facing now is financial aid. No. So if there's somebody who wants to help somebody um, uh, with, with scholarship funding or otherwise, they can just go on the Yale Law and Racial Justice website. My contact information is there. You know, I'm a professor, so my email is publicly available, james.foreman at yale.edu. I'm easy to find, uh, and um, and we can continue the conversation that way. James, I love you, brother, all the work that you're doing. I didn't, until I was researching for this, I didn't even know how truly amazing all the work that you're doing is, your brilliant brain, and you're actually using it and putting it to work. So thank you for joining the Bakari Solis podcast on this first day of Black History Month. Thank you, brother.